Thank you for joining us for today's Practical Living broadcast, and I pray that through this message that you will learn how to apply God's Word and truths to any situation in your life. Stay with us as we discover God's truths that will transform us. Well, I'm going to ask all the Frederick campus to give a warm greeting and welcome to our Gaithersburg campus. Can you do that this morning? Good morning to all the folks in Gaithersburg. Yes, we are streaming live from Frederick County, Maryland. It's great to be in God's house together today with the Frederick campus. And of course, have all of you in the Gaithersburg campus, those that are joining with us online as well, as we continue our series together that we've been involved in for the last several weeks, talking about what to do when, and I want to talk to you this morning about the important topic, what to do when you need a second chance. What do you do when you need a second chance in your life? Our study together has been focused upon a man in the Bible by the name of Jonah, a small book in the Old Testament, four little chapters, 48 verses. And in this amazing little book, one of the minor prophets, not minor in terms of the message, but minor in terms of the length of the book, we find the story that most of us are very familiar with. If I ask you about Jonah this morning, all of you would perhaps say, oh, I know about Jonah. I know about Jonah and the, yeah, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the big fish. But many of us don't realize that there's far more to the story of Jonah than Jonah and the big fish, Jonah and the whale. In fact, we learn a lot of wonderful things from the life of Jonah about what to do when certain things happen in our lives. Two weeks ago, we talked about what to do when we face a storm in our life. And then last weekend, we talked about what to do when times are dark in our life. And as I mentioned today, I want to talk to us about what to do when you need a second chance in your life. There are three points that I want to bring to your attention today, and the first one is foundational and one that I want to jump into right away because it lays the foundation, again, as I said, for everything else that I will talk about this morning. We will spend most of our time on the second and third points, but I want you to simply remember with me as we start out together today and remind ourselves of the story of Jonah to remember that surrendering our life to God is the best choice anyone will ever make in life. Learning to say yes to God when God asks us to do something is one of the wisest things that we can ever do, surrendering ourselves to God. Now, let me talk about that word for surrender just for a moment. When you hear the word surrender, most of us understand that the universal sign or the universal act of surrender are both hands in the air. Law enforcement will often use this when they're approaching someone for an arrest or for some moment when they need to deal with someone that they might be concerned is dangerous. And so they will ask them to put their hands up. And when the hands go up, it is the symbol that there's nothing in their hand that is dangerous. There's no resistance there. And so when it comes to God and our relationship with God, hands up in the air represent far more than just hands. Our desire is to put our hearts before God and say, God, your will is the most important thing in my life. Jonah failed this test. Jonah did not originally surrender himself to God. Go back with me to Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. And the Bible says these words to us. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, 
get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and what did he do? Went in the, say it with me, the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Take a look at this little map that we've been using. I believe you'll have the map. Do you have the map on the screen? There it is. You'll see Israel here. You see A there, uh, point A on the screen. Uh, Israel at this particular time was divided into two portions. There were the ten tribes of Israel to the north, the two tribes of Judah to the south. And of course, during this period of time, Jonah was ministering to the northern kingdom of Israel. Those ten tribes, and there was a king during this time by the name of King Jeroboam II. It's about 750 B.C., 750 years before Christ was born. And things were going well in northern Israel during this time, these ten tribes, because they were prospering. King Jeroboam II had led them to great prosperity. Everything was looking good with one exception. Looming over them is this growing world power named Assyria. And Assyria had a capital city named Nineveh. And Assyria was a threat. It was growing in power. It will become one of the great world powers over time. And then you'll see a sequence of world powers. Assyria will give way to the Babylonians. The Babylonians will give way to the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians will give way to the Greeks and Alexander the Great. And ultimately the Roman kingdom will come in. But this is the beginning of some world powers in this Middle Eastern, Mesopotamia, Levant area of the world. Middle Eastern area of the world. And so Israel is doing well, but the threat of Assyria is over them. And they know this. And at this point in time, God speaks to this prophet named Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Assyria, to the capital city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach a message to them that they're called to repent, turn away from their sins and turn to God. And Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do it. There's a reason that Jonah said no. Jonah said no because he did not want the Ninevites to repent because he wanted God to destroy them. They were the enemies of Israel. And so Jonah knows, hey, God, I know who you are. And I know that if you just have the slightest indication that these folks are going to repent, you're you're just going to be good to them and you're going to forgive them. And I don't want you to forgive them. I want you to destroy them. And so Jonah says, no, not going to go. And he goes down. You see Joppa there down below the little A on the screen. You see Joppa. That's the modern-day port of Jaffa, which is at the southern tip of Tel Aviv in Israel. And he goes down to Jaffa, or modern-day Jaffa, and he gets on a boat, and he heads for Tarshish. And where is Tarshish? You see C on the map there? It is about as far west as you can go from God, where God had called him to go. He's running away from God. Obviously, he's not surrendering, is he? He's doing his will rather than God's will. So he's heading all the way to the edge of the then known world where the Mediterranean Sea dumps into the Atlantic Ocean right there at the Rock of Gibraltar. If you've ever been to that part of the world or studied it, he wants to head in that direction. As he's heading there, the storm breaks out in the boat and you know the story. They cast lots and the lot falls to Jonah and Jonah is thrown overboard and there he is swallowed by a great fish. Why was Jonah thrown overboard and why was he swallowed by a great fish? It's all because Jonah refused to surrender to God. God said, this is my will for your life. Jonah said no. Let me remind you before we get into the essence of today's message, obeying God the first time is the best thing 
Obeying God the first time is the best choice you'll ever make in life. Not fighting God and resisting God and failing to surrender, but surrendering your life to God is always the best choice in your life. So say together with me, surrender is the best choice. Say it with me, surrender is the best choice. Obedience to God is the best choice in your life. Not the second time, but the first time. As soon as God makes clear what you're to do and how you're to live, Our response should be, yes, God, whatever you say is what I want in my life. So the rest of today's message will not have the importance or power that it should unless you understand the first point of foundation that I've given to you. Here's the second lesson for for us today. While surrender is the best choice, we have to understand that failure to surrender isn't final. I was hoping I'd get a little bit of an amen right there, okay? Do the Frederick folks say amen? Okay. Gaithersburg folks, can you say amen as well? Can we all say amen together? Amen? Okay. Failure isn't final. Now, obedience is the best policy, but disobedience is our reality. Should I say that again? Obedience is the best policy, but disobedience is more of our reality. There are more times that we say no than times we say yes to God. There are so many times that we fail to surrender to God on that first option, that first opportunity. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what happens when we don't get it right the first time? And often this disobedient nature takes over. And the reason is because we're all children of Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve sinned against the, since God, against God in the garden and passed onto us what we inherited, this sinful nature, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have this bend inside of us toward doing the wrong thing instead of the right thing. And so we're children of Adam and Eve and we're brothers and sisters of Jonah. In fact, I told you a couple of weeks ago, you might as well change your name to Jonah because you're one of the family, okay, as am I. Because more times than not, we have moments in our life when we do the wrong thing rather than doing the right thing. So here's a very important question that I want us to search out today. How did God handle Jonah when he did the wrong thing? And how does God handle us when we do the wrong thing when we do what Jonah did uh, what Jonah did in his life instead of surrendering we fail to surrender and the the story of Jonah actually answers this question for us it teaches us what God does for people who don't get it right the first time take a look with me at Jonah chapter 2 verse 10 so we're in the second chapter of Jonah the final verse of the second chapter and look at what it says then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach now I read to you last week from another translation NIV and it says in the Lord ordained or ordered or uh, or commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out onto dry ground. Perhaps that's better because this one sounds a little bit more like a resort, okay? No, Jonah was not vomited out, spit out on the Caribbean island somewhere. He was vomited out on dry ground. 
ground. And then notice we're at the latter part. We just came to the final verse of chapter 2. And we switch into chapter 3 where everything changes. And please notice the very first verse of Jonah chapter 3. Read it together with me. It will be on the screen. Let's read aloud and loudly. Read it with me. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a, a second time. A second time. There are perhaps no more encouraging words in all the Bible to hear when we failed than to hear a second time. A second time. See, Jonah deserved to be completely rejected. He deserved to be completely disqualified by God. But God comes to him a second time and says, Jonah, here's a, here's a new opportunity. Jonah, here's a, a second chance. Here's an opportunity for you to actually begin again. You got it wrong the first time, but I'm coming to you a second time. And so the question is, how did Jonah handle this situation the second time? Let's go back and continue to read here in Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Then Jonah spoke, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. And what did God say to him? Get up and say it with me. Get up and go. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I've given you. This time, this time, this time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. When God comes to him a second time, Jonah got it right the second time. He wasted no time beginning again. He didn't stay down. He didn't wallow in his failure. And this teaches us some very important lessons in our lives. While obedience to God the first time is the wisest thing you will ever do in life, Many times we don't do it right the first time. And because we don't do it right the first time, the question is, does God ever give second chances? And I'm here to remind you today, and boy, do I want to shout about this. God is the God of second chances. Amen. He's the God of second chances. He's the God that picks people up who didn't get it right the first time. And there are people in this worship center today, people in our Gaithersburg worship center today, people that are listening online or watching online today, or someone that will be listening to this maybe six months from now, and you've failed, you've missed the mark, you you didn't get it right the first time. And I'm here again to remind you that our God is the God of second chances. Dare I say, and I will say, He's not only the God of second chances, but third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. He will stay after you until you get it right. That, that is, that is no excuse for the main principle I gave you that obedience to God the first time is always the best thing in your life. But God is the God of second chances. So what do we do when we didn't get it right the first time? And I would not be a good pastor to you if I didn't teach you what to do when you fail. Because we all fail at times. We all get it wrong at times. We all, as I mentioned a moment ago, are brothers and sisters of Jonah. We run the opposite direction of what God says to do. And so I'm going to give you five things right now that I want you to write down. If you're taking notes today, I would encourage you to do so. Five steps that need to be in your life if you're going to take advantage of second chances. Do you want to experience God's best 
even if it's the second time around, do you? Okay. What do you do? Here are five things. Number one, you need to express sincere sorrow to God for your sin. In the belly of that fish, as you go back in chapter 2 and read, Jonah came to the place of really being sorry for his sin. And that's true for you and me as well. Not sorry that it just sort of messed up our life, but really sorry that we broke God's law. Sorry that we missed the mark with God. And, And not just sorry where we shed just a few tears, but sorry in a way that produces something the Bible calls repentance. And that's what real sorrow is. It brings about a change in your thinking. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. And it means to change your thinking in a way that changes your attitudes and your your behavior. And so God says, are you really sorry for the fact that you've gone your own way? Because God can do a lot of stuff with people who are sorry for their sins. Paul the Apostle writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Notice, godly sorrow has the effect of bringing about repentance that leads to a change of your life, to salvation, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. What is worldly sorrow? It's just feeling guilty about something and never doing anything about it. Worldly sorrow. Please listen to that. Guilt never changes anybody. Have you ever changed someone by guilting them? No. Shame never changes anyone. Guilt and shame are useful only in this sense. They remind you that something's wrong in your life that needs to get fixed. Think of guilt and shame as the dashboard of your car. And you often will see when there's a problem with your engine, the check engine light. Anybody have the check engine light on your car? You don't have that on your car? Okay. It's a little thing that pops up or you have something that tells you there's a problem with your car. There's this little message that's given to you there. And the message isn't the problem. The message is pointing to the problem. It would be foolish to get out a gun and shoot the light, okay? Because the light's not the problem. The light's telling you your engine is the problem. And guilt is that same thing. Guilt is that flashing light on the dashboard of your car telling you problem, problem, problem. And many times we try to attack the guilt and get rid of the guilt and push the guilt and the shame away. Or we try to heap on guilt or shame onto somebody's life thinking that's going to change him. No, that never changes anyone. What changes someone is really deep sorrow for having broken God's law and broken God's will And it produces repentance that changes everything. Number two, the second thing that's necessary to experience the return, the restoration from a failure in your life is honest ownership of your sin. Not only are you sorry, but you also own it. What that means is this. It means that you confess your sin to God. That that moment of guilt turns into godly sorrow. And then you go to God and say, God, I'm going to acknowledge before you and own up with you what I've done wrong. And to name what you've done wrong to God. Interesting word, confess, in the Greek language, the New Testament language. It's, it's a combination word. And the, the combined Greek word is homo logeo. Two words, homo same logeo word. So, homo logeo, confess, means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. That is, if God says it's wrong, you agree it's wrong, okay? You don't argue with God and say, hey, God, I have a reason for this. This is justified. In fact, part of the problem with our world today is we've lost wrong and right, right and wrong. 
We've lost the awareness of what God says is appropriate, what God says is inappropriate. And so we've got people making up their own ways in this world now, and they're this called relativism. relativism. Uh, whatever feels good to me is okay as long as I can justify it. No, that's not God's way. God's way is this is right and this is wrong, and when I violate it, I agree with God and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. That's called confession. It's owning your sin. If we're truly guilty of our sin and sorry for our sin, then it brings us to that confession. The psalmist David says in Psalm 32, these words, there was a time, I'm reading from the Living Bible, there was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. All day and all night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally, what's the next word? Come on, church. I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. I think that's a great place to add a hallelujah. Don't you think so? Okay. All my guilt is gone. Okay. Now I say that each believer should confess his sins to God when he's aware of them. While there is time to be forgiven, judgment will not touch him if he does. So we confess. We go to God and say, God, I'm really, really sorry. I'm sorry when you said to go to Nineveh, I went to Tarshish. I'm sorry when you said to do this, I did that. I'm sorry, and God, I confess this sin to you. I ask you to forgive me. And we confess it to God. Oftentimes it's helpful to confess it to someone else as well. As the Bible says in James chapter 5 verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I will add one little phrase there. It goes on to say the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. It's, it's sometimes it helps to have a person that you can pray with about the problems that you're going through in your life. But the key is the right person. You can't just confess your sins to anybody because some folks are gossips, okay? So you've got to find the right people. And sometimes there's an important moment that you need another person in your life that's there to help you find that healing. That's why we have things like Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery provides an environment where you can deal with stuff like that. And you're dealing with it not just on your own, but you're dealing with it with the help of other people. You're praying for one another so that there's healing. The third thing that's necessary is faith. Faith in God's forgiveness. Are you tracking with me today? Is God the God of a second chance? He is. When He gives us a second chance, what should we do? We should be sorry, deeply sorry for our sin. We should confess it to God. And then we need to have faith that our God is a forgiving God. And we need to receive forgiveness. Let me see if I can explain it this way. I want you to think with me about the word forgiveness. Say it with me. Forgiveness. I want you to say it in three parts. Forgiveness. What is it? In the, what is in the heart of forgiveness? What's the word that's in the heart of forgiveness? Give. Okay. Forgiveness is not something you earn from God. Forgiveness is a gift from God. It's what He gives to you. It's not for earnness. It's not for worksness. 
It's not, oh God, I've sinned. I need to go and say 500 uh, our fathers. Nothing wrong with saying 500 our fathers, but that doesn't earn you forgiveness. Because 500 our fathers doesn't earn you forgiveness. Because there's no works that will ever earn you forgiveness. You can't work enough to, to earn God's forgiveness. Why? Because it's a gift. It's something that God says, I'm willing to give this to you. If you'll ask me, I will give it to you. And so you and I come and we simply accept the fact that if we confess our sins, as the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. It's a great story in Zechariah chapter 3 of a, a priest by the name of Joshua or Joshua, as some translations give us his name. And let me read this story for you, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And then the angel showed me Joshua or Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, the accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Joshua or Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, re reject your accusation, Satan. Yes, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick. Joshua, Joshua is like a burning stick that I have snatched from the fire. The fire was about to destroy him, but I snatched him out. So the angel said to the others standing there, or excuse me, verse 3, Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins. And now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. This is what Jesus does for you when you come to him and you've missed the mark. And you should have gotten it right the first time, but you didn't. And God comes and he speaks to you a second time, or maybe it's a third time, or maybe it's a tenth time if you're really stubborn. Okay. And he comes back to you again and says, I told you what you need to be doing now. Will you come to me again? And we come to God with sorrow in our heart. We confess our sins and then we don't earn his forgiveness. It's freely given to us by God. And then the next thing that we do is we rebuild our confidence and we rebuild our character. You need to restore your confidence that you are back in right relationship with God and learn from your failures. What did you learn from the mistake of your life? What did you learn about the, the detrimental aspects of going away from God rather than going to God? Because if you haven't learned anything from your failure, you're still foolish, okay? Wise people learn from their failures. And so what did you learn? Have you learned anything from what you went through? Did you learn not to go to that place anymore? Not to hang out with that person anymore? Not to fill in the blank or to do whatever it might be? What did you learn that got you in trouble the first time that now becomes a lesson for you in the future? There's a story in John chapter 8 of Jesus with a, uh, with a group of Pharisees who brought to him a woman who is, notice this, caught in the very act of adultery. Not accused of adultery, but actually caught in the very act of adultery. So these Pharisees bring this lady to Jesus. More than likely, either she was naked or clothed in a and threw this woman down at the feet of Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law says stone her. What do you say, Jesus? 
when Jesus bent down on the ground and began to write in the dust. And that's another story for another day in terms of what Jesus wrote. But one by one, all of the Pharisees, these religious, self-righteous people left. And finally, it's just Jesus and this lady that's, that's in the setting now. And the spotlight goes to Jesus as he's talking to this woman. And in verse number 10, John chapter 8, we see these words. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where are the people that were here condemning you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. But he didn't stop there. Read the last sentence with me. What did he say? Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus said, I'm not condemning you, but I hope you learned a lesson from this. I'm not condemning you, but now go and live life differently than you lived it before. Take a lesson from your failures. And then, number five, you and I need to re-engage with God and with other people. To be restored, you need that re-engagement, returning to active service, returning to active worship. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is I've noticed that when people uh, mess up, when they blow it with God and they make some mistakes in their life, sometimes they just quit coming to church they just, they, they, you know, because they feel so guilty. They want to get right with God, but they stop coming to church because of their shame and their guilt. Never let that happen to you. The best place you can be if you've made some mistakes in your life is church. Amen? That's the best place you can be. Why? Because church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Okay? That's what we are. We're not here to show off how holy we are. We're here to say we all need healing in our life. We all need restoration. And so the best place that you can be in your life is when you've, when you've fallen away. Don't run away from church. Run, run to church as fast as you can get there. Okay? And you may come to church but still feel guilty. And, and maybe you're in the middle of worship. You, you get your hands up and the devil shows up and says, who, who do you think you are? You remember what you did last Tuesday? Remember what you said? Remember what you did? And the devil begins to accuse you and the devil begins to remind you of your past. The devil is so good at reminding people about their past. He'll sit right on your shoulder, he'll whisper in your ear, and he'll tell you all the things you did in the past that were wrong. You did this and you did that. And before long, the hands that were like this start becoming like this. And before long, they're like this. Before long, they're like this. Okay. And the mouth that was singing praise to God shuts up and stops praising God because shame has shut you down, okay? The devil shaming you has shut you down. I don't know who originally said it, but I love the statement. I would give credit to whoever said it uh, originally. I don't know who it is, so I'll take credit for it, okay? I'm joking. Every time the devil reminds you of your past you remind him of his future. Amen, okay, right? What's the future of the adversary? The lake of fire forever and ever. So every time the devil shows up and starts talking to you about your past that's under the blood of Jesus that you've been forgiven for, that Jesus has washed you and cleansed you from, every time he tries to bring up stuff that Jesus has forgiven, you just remind him, hey, you're telling me about your past. This is a great opportunity for me to remind you of what your future is going to be. Amen? So we re-engage with God. Proverbs 24 16 says, for though a righteous man, obviously that includes 
a woman as well. This is generically speaking. For though a righteous man falls seven times, what does he do? He rises again. Let me conclude here today with my final point. Third lesson, number one, surrender to God is always the best choice in your life. First time he asks you to do it, do it. But when you fail, failure isn't final. And number three, restoration in your life always brings responsibility. God was very good to Jonah, wasn't he? He was very good to Jonah. But with this gracious second chance that God gave Jonah came some important responsibilities in Jonah's life. Jonah was called to fulfill the original mission that had been given to him. And so look with me again in chapter 3. Let's take a look at a few verses as we wrap up today's message. The Bible says on the day Jonah uh, entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When God saw that they had put a stop to their evil ways, he had mercy on them and didn't carry out the destruction he had threatened. So what I want you to see is that after Jonah received forgiveness from God, he went back and did what God asked him to do. He took the grace that he had received and he extended the grace he had received to the Ninevites who needed the grace of God in their lives. He became a messenger of grace, God's grace to others. We need to do the same. When we receive the grace of God in our life, with that grace, His forgiveness, second chances that He gives us, every time God gives you a second chance and you respond to Him and you receive forgiveness from Him, with that comes a responsibility to take that same grace and show it to somebody else. Okay? Here's a very important thing to remember. If you've been forgiven, you need to be forgiving. If you've received grace, you need to show grace. If you've received mercy from God, you need to be merciful. And the world in which we live today is a world that desperately needs to know the grace of God. I could stand here this morning and I could pontificate on all the evils of this world. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in our world right now. A lot of crazy stuff going Crazy stuff going on in our world right now. People calling wrong right and right wrong and all kind of stuff that's just some of those mixed up morals that we've ever seen in our culture. But it's not going to do any good at this moment for me to point my finger at them and pontificate against their evils. But what will do good is to preach to them the love and grace of God because that's the only thing that will change them. Okay? There's only one message that will change a hardened heart. That's the love of Jesus. Okay? What changed your heart? It wasn't someone coming in and pounding you with the Bible. It was someone that showed you the love of God, that God cared deeply about you. And so the world is in desperate need of people like you and me who will take the message of second chances to the people around us who desperately need to hear it. And so if you've received grace, you need to be a giver of grace to others. You need to become a voice of grace to a broken world. Amen? A voice of grace to the broken world. So what, is, what does this kind of person look like? Let me quickly give you five words here. Write them down quickly. Uh, this, this will help you frame what you are to be, having received a second chance from God. Number one, you need to be very grateful. God, I thank you so much for giving me a second chance. Anybody want to join me this morning and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving me a second chance, okay? 
Thank you, Jesus, for giving me a third chance, a fifth chance, a 20th chance for some of you. Thank you, Jesus, for being with me and being patient with me. When I was going the wrong way, you were patient. I'm grateful. I thank you, God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I'm going to preach longer because I'm in Frederick. Is that okay? That's it. We'll be out by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Don't worry about it. Okay? So, now i got to get back for the 1 o'clock service in, in Gaithersburg. So you're safe, okay? Kind of. Okay. There's a story that happened in the New Testament where Jesus was invited into a, into a house owned by a man named Simon with some Pharisees there. He's there for a meal, and while he's in that room, there was a woman that came into the room and came over to where Jesus was, and she had a jar of very expensive perfume. And she knelt down at Jesus' feet, and she began to weep, and she began to wipe the feet of Jesus with her tears, and she began to pour out the perfume on Jesus' feet. And the Pharisees became all upset about, doesn't he know who she is? She's a filthy, dirty, sinful woman. And Jesus said, time out, let me give you a story. He said, you know, there was a man that had two, two folks that owed him some money. One owed him 500 denarii, another owed him 50 denarii, and neither could pay them back. And, and so he forgave both of them. And then he poses the question to Simon and the Pharisees, which of these two men would love the master most, the one that was forgiven 500 or the man that, man that was forgiven 50? And they said, well, the man probably that was forgiven 500 would love the man most because he was forgiven most. And Jesus then made this statement. It's found in Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Let me tell you, when you've, been for, when you've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot. Amen? Okay? When you've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot. And if you haven't been forgiven a lot, you don't know how much you need to be forgiven a lot. Okay? Okay? Because all of us need to be forgiven a lot. Okay? Second thing, you need to be a restorer of other people. Extending, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, the message of love and grace to other people. Paul talks about this in Galatians 6 verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, another person in the church, they're overcome by some kind of sin, you who are godly. One translation says you who are spiritual. Here are the spiritual people now, the godly people. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on the right track and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So what is the mark of a truly godly person, a truly spiritual person? They gently and humbly help other people, restore other people. Thirdly, be a safe person. Our world needs safe people that they can open their hearts to. Safety means that you're trustworthy, that you're there to care for someone else. It's not about you. It's about them. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, He, God, has enabled us to be ministers. You're called to be a minister. Did you know that? You're called to be a minister. 
Everyone in this room, everyone in this, in this campus, Gaithersburg campus, Frederick campus, online campus, you're called to be a minister of His new covenant. What is His new covenant? This is the covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written law ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Can I ask you, when you are trying to help someone else, are you a death giver or are you a life giver? Do you deal death or do you speak life? Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16 describes Jesus and what we're to be like. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, notice this, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the kind of person who is always safe to be around. It's safe to come to Jesus, and we should be safe for people to help them in their journey. Number four is to be compassionate. It goes along with being safe. Jesus, when he, the Bible says in Mark six thirty four, when Jesus landed and saw a great crowd or a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Do you have compassion on people that are struggling? Do you have compassion on people who are maybe not living the right life? Do you have compassion on your neighbors who are not loving God or serving God? Or are you condemning toward them? Do you have compassion? They need the same grace that you and I need in our lives. The Bible says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And then finally, here's the probably the icing on the cake. And it's something everybody can do. You and I need to be encouragers to other people. There's something that every one of us in this room, every one of us in these campuses today that we can do. You can do this. You can be an encourager to somebody. I want you to say with me, I can be an encourager. Say it together. I can be an encourager. Do you know how many people are just that that much away from giving up because they have no encouragement in their life? Nobody's spoken a word of encouragement to them in decades. And sometimes the very thing that will open up a a person's life to the love and gospel of Jesus is someone like you coming along and finding something to speak of life that's life-giving and encouraging to another person and breathing life into them and letting them know that God loves and cares about them and there's something in their life worth giving and worth living for and you're that person that communicates that encouraging message that allows them to rise up and get up and move forward with God. You can be that voice in another person's life but you have to choose to be an encourager. There are a lot of people who've chosen to be discouragers I think some people think it's a gift, okay? They have the gift of discouragement. I think I've met a few of those people along the way, okay? Don't be that person. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, don't be that person. Go tell them, don't be that person, okay? Don't be that person. Don't be the person that walks around discouraging everybody, no. Be the person that walks around. Everybody loves it when they see you coming. Don't be the person that everybody runs when they see you coming, okay? Be the person that's, oh, look, he's coming. I can't wait to see them. Why? Because every time... He, every time she shows up in my life, it seems like I feel better because they're around me. They lift me up. They strengthen me. I'm encouraged just by being around them. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their, their needs that it may benefit those who 
listen. What have we learned today? We learned that surrender to God the first time is always the best choice. But when we don't surrender the first time, failure is never final. And once you've been restored by God, God calls you to embrace the responsibility to take his message of restoration to every person you possibly can as a wonderful family of God extending his love to a broken world. Would you bow your heads together with me as we pray today? Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. And Lord, I especially pray this morning for those that are here who feel like that they need a second chance or a third chance, or maybe it's a a tenth chance because they've seemed to have blown it over and over again. And they wondered, Lord, could they ever get back in right standing with you? Or maybe they've been troubled by guilt over something in their past and has haunted them time and time again. I pray that today would be the day that this is put to rest forever. And they will know, just like Jonah found out, that you're a gracious and loving and kind God, that you bring us back into fellowship with yourself. And Lord, then you give us a mission to take your love and grace to other people. Lord, seal this word in our heart today by your presence and by your spirit. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me, and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray, and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out, and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God, and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus... I know that that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time.